Eliezer's on the piano uh, this morning. Thank you. Eliezer has been a part of the congregation for about two weeks and uh, put him to work. I'm really grateful for all of the folks back here who make our gathering possible. Uh, Our time together from Eliezer all the way up to John May, who's probably been a part of the congregation for decades, for uh, Abby, who's heading off to college soon, as is Joan, who really got us through the pandemic with Stephen, for all of the folks in the band, old, young, uh, new, been around a while. Uh, Thank you. Uh, It takes a village, and uh, I'm really grateful for the village that God's given us here, that God's given us one another. I want to recognize uh, someone this morning and uh, do that with some risk, because when you recognize one person, you inevitably forget or can't name or don't have the time to name a whole bunch of other people. So for those of you who aren't recognized, I apologize. Please forgive me. It'll be okay. uh, this is the last uh, Sunday morning with us for David and Diane Checky. Uh, they've been a part of the congregation for some 30 years or so. I remember meeting David uh, during my first weeks here uh, 13 years ago. David and Diane are retiring, so to speak, and heading off to Arizona uh, where they will uh, live. Uh, we will miss them. Uh, they have served in a variety of capacities and have been models for us of servanthood. Uh, Diane served as a deacon. She served as a wedding coordinator. She helped plan retreats, uh, all sorts of events, been a part of our prayer team. Uh, David, I've spent more time interacting with uh, as the chair of our facilities team for many years, serving on session, a couple of uh, terms in addition to serving as a deacon, and for the last 10 years or so, uh, being the head of our usher team, our hospitality team, uh, where you've seen him, where he has welcomed you. Many of you, he remembered your name from the first time that you came and were a part of this congregation. Uh, so we will really miss them. I was uh, actually going through my phone this week, clearing out some photos. I ran across this photo of David. Uh, he's in the trenches uh, fixing uh, sprinkler systems over here on the edge of the sanctuary out there. Uh, that was David's style. It has been and it is, and it's a model for us of servanthood, of uh, being around and serving in, in whatever capacity uh, the church needed. And so I'm really grateful for both of them, David, especially for you. Are you guys here? Could you stand for a sec? We're going to pray for you. And then there's going to be a cake. If you've, We've got a cake, I hear. There's a cake. So if you've been around 30 years, you get a cake. If you've been around 25 years, don't ask for a cake. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our brother and sister David and Diane for uh, the ways that they've uh, been among us, for the gift that they've been to us, for your life exhibited in their lives. Bless them as they move to a new place, uh, to a new season in their lives. Fill them with joy and abundance. Grant them your continued peace and grace. Use them in their new place to be a blessing to many as they have been here. We pray with gratitude in Jesus' name. Amen cake after worship. All right, actually, we're going to pray again because we've got a huge passage, and uh, we're a little bit behind schedule, a uh, monster passage before us this morning that I'm not sure what to do with. I'm going to give it a whirl. Uh, pray with me. God, we want to uh, know you. We want to see you. We want to uh, be in 
union and fellowship with you. We want to uh, be obedient. We want to be uh, filled with your spirit. Help us do that. Bring that about. We can only do so much. Help us to be available in mind, body, and spirit. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way or fashion from your word, may they be forgotten, passed over forever and ever. We pray with hope in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So we're halfway now, halfway at the halfway point of our study of Mark's gospel. In the first half of his gospel, Mark was interested in showing his readers who Jesus was. In the second half of his gospel, Mark intends to show his readers Jesus' mission and purpose. Who Jesus was and now who, what Jesus' mission and purpose were. Over the past three weeks in chapter 8, we've seen Jesus heal a blind man. You remember that he healed that blind man, we said, in stages. With Jesus' intervention, Jesus' help, that man came to see no sight, no vision, then vision, then complete vision. It happened in stages. Then in Caesarea Philippi, at a location that over the centuries had been a focal point of various religions, faith, philosophies, beliefs, and gods, Jesus asked his disciples two questions. Who do people say that I am? Who do the people out there say that I am? And then who do you say that I am. And the impetuous disciple Peter responds, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one, Peter says. And Peter was right. And Jesus seemed to accept Peter's response, but Jesus certainly didn't fully embrace Jesus' response. Instead, you remember, Jesus responded by speaking of himself in the very cryptic term, son of man, his favorite way to refer to himself, to which Jesus adds the critical information that as son of man, he would suffer many things. He would be rejected by the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He would be killed. And on the third day, he would rise again. Of course, Peter had in mind a victorious military political Messiah king when he said, you are Messiah. Peter didn't yet fully understand the sort of Messiah that Jesus would be the sort of Messiah that Jesus was, like the man whom Jesus healed of blindness in stages, so Peter would also come to see and understand in stages. And so Mark wrote, Jesus again warned them not to tell anyone about him yet. And then last week we read Jesus' next saying, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And not only was this an example of Jesus continuing to train his students, but as we said last Sunday, this is the high point. This is the pinnacle of Jesus' teaching in the gospel of Mark. The high point and the pinnacle of Jesus' teaching in the gospel of Mark. And it remains the high point and the pinnacle of Jesus' teaching for us. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. As would be the way of Jesus himself, so would be the way of his disciples, followers, apprentices. As would be the way of Jesus himself so must be the way also of his followers, his disciples, his students. And now to chapter 9 of Mark's gospel, beginning at verse 2. Let's pay as close attention as we can. This is God's word. 
After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. No one knows what mountain this is exactly. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, my rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them, the, gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead could possibly mean. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restore all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Jesus was transfigured. Transfigured is not a word that we, that I use very often. It's not a part of my regular vocabulary. Jesus was transfigured. What did that mean? The Greek word translated here as transfigured is metamorpho. Say that with me. Metamorpho. From which we get the English word metamorphosis, right, which is in which is the process in which, by which, through which, during which, of course, a caterpillar is transfigured into a butterfly. Metamorphosis. When the Apostle Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe what will happen to each of us at the resurrection, metamorpho is translated simply changed, but changed in a big, complete, holistic way. When Paul uses metamorpho in Romans 12 to describe what happens to people who have been rescued, redeemed, reconciled, and made new in and by Jesus Christ, that word is translated there as transformed. You get the picture, and Mark tells his readers a bit about what Jesus' transfiguration literally is, metamorphosis, actually looked like. Verse 3, Jesus' clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach. The gospel writer Luke shared even more. The appearance of Jesus' face... His countenance changed, and Jesus' clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. The gospel writer Matthew put it this way, Jesus' face shone like the sun. Can anyone even look at the sun? And his clothes became as white as the light. And now we really get the picture, but what still does this mean, transfigure? Up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Mark has recorded for us a lot of amazing, interesting, miraculous, astonishing things. But this mountaintop event may be the most unique and curious, at least to me, of everything to date. It may be the most unusual, unexpected, and confusing thing yet. What did it mean? What was it all about? Mark begins this section by writing, after six days, Jesus took his disciples, dot, dot, dot. Up to this point in his gospel, Mark has begun every little section, every new thought, event, idea with either immediately or and, moving quickly, quickly, quickly through things, it seems. 
But here now, Mark begins very specifically, after six days. Curious. Of course, in chapter one of Genesis, in the very first chapter of the Bible, after six days of creating, God took a break. After six days of work, God took a rest. Could what's happening here on this mountain in chapter nine of Mark's gospel have something to do with that, with creation or a new creation? Sort of like John does at the beginning of his gospel, beginning with in the beginning, just as Genesis begins in the, new, in the beginning to show that what's happening here and in Jesus is something totally new, revolutionary, and radical. Maybe. Or maybe there's something else. Reading now from chapter 24 of the book of Exodus, Exodus, the second book in the Bible. When Moses went up on a mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, after six days, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, not unlike someone else's 40 days and 40 nights. Going back to verse 1 of Exodus 24, we see even more similarities between that and this. Moses goes up with three named people and 70 elders up a mountain. We read in Exodus 24, Jesus takes three of his disciples up a mountain. Moses' skin shines when he descends from the mountain after talking with God. Jesus is transfigured and his clothes and his face shine radiantly. God appears to Moses in veiled form in an overshadowing cloud. God appears to Peter and James and John and Jesus in veiled form in an overshadowing cloud. In chapter 35 of Exodus, a little bit later, the people are afraid to come near Moses after he descends from the mountain. In verse 15 of chapter 9, just beyond what we read, the people are astonished when they see Jesus after he descends from the mountain. The similarities are many, but what do they mean? Moses, of course, was the greatest figure in Jewish thought. It wasn't Adam, it wasn't Abraham, it wasn't Isaac, it wasn't Jacob, it wasn't Elijah, it wasn't King David, it wasn't anyone else. It was Moses, Moshe. The similarities are many, but what do they mean? Moses was the one who led the people out of Egypt, who was responsible for their rescue, for their redemption, for their liberation, for their salvation. Here comes a new Moses. What does all of this mean? Peter doesn't know. He was once again terrified, clueless, and bumbling. And then the celebrity guests show up out of nowhere. Moses from 1,400 years prior and Elijah from 900 years earlier. It's like the first century version of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Peter didn't know what to say, and so, of course, he spoke. Is that anyone else here? It's me sometimes when you don't know what to say but feel like you have to say something, you go ahead and say something that probably wasn't the best thing to say. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, literally three tents, or in the Old Testament word, tabernacle. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened, Mark records. Peter may have known that he was standing on holy ground, and so just as the Jewish people built a tabernacle for God, Peter thought it would be appropriate for him to build something for these esteemed men as well. How did he know who Moses and Elijah were? We have no idea. There were no photographs. 
Peter may have just overheard them speaking with Jesus, reminiscing about the old times. Or maybe Moses was admiring the promised land. Wow, this place is really nice. I like the landscape. Remember, Moses, after 40 years wandering in the wilderness, gets right up to the edge and is able to look over, but isn't able to enter. And now, finally, wow, nice digs. Peter offered to build shelters, tents, tabernacles, maybe because he wanted to honor them. Maybe because he wanted them to stick around and wanted this moment to last longer. Maybe because he wanted to hang on to this moment himself, for himself. As we sometimes do with our own mountaintop experiences. Mount Hermon experiences. Hang on to them, cling to them, don't let them slip away. Don't leave or exit that moment. Peter didn't know what to say or do. Verse 7, then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Which is, was very close to what the voice from heaven spoke at Jesus' baptism in chapter one of Mark's gospel when John the Baptist was baptizing Jesus. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You are my son whom I love. With whom I am well pleased. And now this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And then suddenly, Moses and Elijah are gone. It was through Moses that God gave people the greatly revered law that was so much a part of their identity and daily life and community life. And Elijah was widely regarded as Israel's greatest prophet. This is my son whom I love. Listen Listen to him. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah are gone. If Moses, who was the one through whom God had saved, rescued, liberated his people in history, if Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets, the message there and then on that mountain seems to be that one had now come who was greater than Moses, greater than Elijah who had more authority than the law and more power than the prophets. And there's so much more. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, you can't stay on the mountain forever. You can't stay in the luminous presence of God or of Jesus always. We've got to come down uh, the mountain into the trenches of this world where life is lived, where there's work to be done, where there's a message to be delivered, where God's kingdom comes. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, obediently discussing what rising from the dead meant. This is now the second time in Mark's gospel that Jesus tells his disciples that he will be raised from the dead. And he will say it again in Mark's gospel. His disciples are still clueless. They cannot see, but they will see. One day they will see with their own eyes, just as Peter and James and John had seen that day on a mountain with their own eyes, the glorious splendor of Jesus, the glorious splendor of God in Christ. 
This is now the second time in Mark's gospel that Jesus tells his disciples that he will be raised from the dead. And this is the last of many times in Mark's gospel that Jesus will tell his disciples or anyone. Sometimes it's demons. Sometimes it's people he has healed. Sometimes it is people out of whom he has cast demons. Sometimes it is his disciples. This is the last time in Mark's gospel that Jesus will tell people not to tell other people about him. Because soon everyone will see fully. Soon everyone will understand Soon everything will become evident. Soon everyone would know the reason for Jesus coming. Soon everyone would understand Jesus' mission and purpose. They would be made crystal clear on a cross and in and through an empty tomb. The centerpiece of Jesus' mission and purpose were becoming slowly evident. Jesus' disciples were not to talk yet about what they'd seen on the mountain because such could not yet fully be understood. For them to tell and talk about Jesus at this point without the full understanding would be to promote an incomplete message. But Jesus' disciples did, err, did dare to ask Jesus a question. Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? You remember that Elijah never died, but instead the end of his ministry, at the end of his ministry, he was whisked up into heaven by what appeared to be a chariot of fire, led, pulled by horses of fire. 2 Kings chapter 2. And you remember that the prophet Malachi, in the last book of the Old Testament, in the last chapter of that book, wrote, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. The last announcement before the Old Testament and the prophets go silent. The last word, the last thing is that Elijah will return. He will come first. He will proceed. He will pave the way. He will lower the mountains. He will raise the valley. Elijah would return ahead of the great day of the Lord. Why do the teachers, verse 11, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah must, does come first and restores all things. We don't know if this is a question uh, next because there is no punctuation in the Greek text. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, Jesus says, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. And Luke affirmed in the first chapter of his gospel that John the Baptist did come, quoting, before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is who John the Baptist was and would be, Luke wrote. And back in chapter 6 of Mark's gospel, you remember that John the Baptist, whom Mark tells his readers some thought was Elijah, suffered at the hands of Herod, suffered by having his head cut off. Elijah had come, Jesus said, and they did to him, quote, everything they wished, just as it was written about him, and they would likewise do to Jesus Everything they would do to Jesus, just as Isaiah had written, he would be led like a lamb to slaughter. So what to do now with all of this? Weird, confusing, unique, unusual stuff. Transfiguration. 
What's the significance of the most unusual event? What does it mean for us? Where does the rubber hit the road? Here are a few things. First, we see in Jesus' transfiguration the divinity of Jesus. You don't see the divinity of Muhammad. You don't see the divinity of Buddha. You don't see the divinity of Moses. You don't see the divinity of Joseph Smith. Here we see the divinity of Jesus, God's son. Mark began his gospel writing. You remember his thesis statement, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And slowly now he's unpacking that more and more. And so much of the first half of Mark's gospel, Mark showed us Jesus' humanity. Now we get to see better, clearer glimpses also of Jesus' divinity. On Mount Sinai, Moses reflected Shekinah glory of God to which he had been exposed. On top of this mountain in Mark 9, Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God. Jesus is not like Elijah or even Moses. He far exceeds them in every way. Listen to what John, this same John, writes years later after this mountaintop experience in the first chapter, the opening chapter, the lead chapter of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father and has made him known. We have seen God's glory in this man who is more than a man. Peter wrote a little bit couple of letters that became part of the New Testament there in the back. Same Peter, same Peter, James, and John. In his second letter, letter he wrote, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. This is a big event. First, Jesus' divinity. Second, Jesus' transformation happens right between its bracketed by announcements of suffering. First about what would soon happen to Jesus, in other words, suffering, rejection, execution, and what would be the experience of those who would dare to follow Jesus at the end of chapter 8, and now at the start of chapter 9, what those in authority had already done to the Elijah figure, John the Baptist, and so what they would also do to Jesus. The gospel and the kingdom are not devoid of suffering, and anyone who tells you otherwise is not telling you the truth. Is not telling you the truth. And this was an important word, particularly for Mark's first audience in the first century who were enduring great suffering. 
on a regular and daily basis because they dared to follow the crucified king. Third, despite the suffering that will most likely, if not certainly, be a part of following Jesus, as it was for John the Baptist paving the way for Jesus, as it was for Jesus himself, there will be vindication in the end, what the scriptures call glory. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, as uh, we're reading Romans on Friday mornings, just finished chapter 8, verse 17 goes like this, Now if we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Jesus, Son of God, Divine One, God-Man, suffering, and then vindication and glory for Him and for those in Him. Jesus' transfiguration was for Peter and James and John, and it is for you and me, a foretaste of Jesus' resurrection a foretaste of Jesus' resurrection. Did another memorial service last week. Said to those who were gathered for that memorial service, I have no words of hope for you outside of the resurrection of Jesus. I have no words of hope for you outside of the resurrection of Jesus. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have every reason to hope, a great, firm, and certain hope. And that's the message here. Jesus' transfiguration is a foretaste of his resurrection, of a resurrection to new life, of a resurrection reality in which we will see and experience the fullness of God in all of his glory, in all of his splendor. Peter, James, and John had no idea what was going on, but Jesus' transfiguration served as an unmistakable beacon that they would soon look back on and say, oh, 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 that's what it was all about. That's what it means when Jesus was resurrected. And so we can look back on Jesus' transfiguration just as we look back on his resurrection and go, yes, we know. And because we know we live with hope, we live with joy, we live, live with peace, we do not live with fear, we do not live with worry, we do not have to live with anxiety because our future is set. Because Jesus was transfigured, because Jesus was raised. When the women saw the radiating angel at Jesus' empty tomb, they would put it all together as well. Oh, the radiance of the glory of God lives and lives and lives. May his life be manifest in ours through hope and through certainty of his resurrection foreshadowed in his transfiguration. May this be so. Let's pray. You turned on the lights, God. You allowed a little bit of your glory and splendor and Shekinah to leak through the clouds on Sinai with Moses. 
you placed all of your glory and Shekinah in Jesus, Paul said, in whom the fullness of God dwelt. Continue to reveal to us the radiance of your Son today, yesterday, and tomorrow that you might be glorified and that we might be satisfied.